0: James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they wanted to take charge of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. You can take your seats. Let's take just a moment to pray together. Father, I don't know every story in this room, but you do. And I pray that you would help us to believe this morning, help all of us to believe that you see us and you know us, and that you've brought us here because you desire to speak to us. And so, God, would you come and would you comfort those who need to be comforted? Would you convict those who need to be convicted? Would you encourage those who need to be encouraged? Would you strengthen those who need to be strengthened? God, our lives are complex and you alone have the wisdom and the power to speak into them. And we pray that you would this morning. Help us to believe that we're here because you've brought us here, that none of us are here by accident. Whether we came in this room this morning full of faith or full of doubt, Wondering if we could ever believe these things. God, we are here and we want to hear from you. We need to hear from you. And so we, so we pray that you would speak. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Well, good morning. My name is Brent. I'm one of the pastors here. If I have not met you yet, I would love to get to meet you after the service. Uh, we are in a series in the Gospel of Mark. And we have been looking at the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus is unlike any other way. It, it offers you and me a life unlike any other life. Uh, Four years ago was the 50th anniversary of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s death. There are all sorts of commemorations that took place that day and that week uh, around the anniversary of his death but there there was one speech in particular that caught my attention. And it was given by an African American pastor. And he said this, he said, Nobody accepts the religion of their oppressor, yet the slaves accepted the Christianity of their oppressors. Either they were incredibly stupid, or they found something in Jesus that the white man knew nothing about. What did they find in Jesus? Well, amongst other things, they found someone who could bring real freedom and real hope and real meaning, and real joy. See, the way of Jesus is unlike any other way, and it offers a life unlike any other life because when you become a follower of Jesus, it changes everything in your life. It changes the way you think about forgiveness, and money, and your neighbor, and your singleness, or your marriage, or your parenting. It changes the way that you think about justice, And caring for the poor, it changes the way that you think about sex. It changes the way that you think about your vocation. It changes the way that you think about suffering. Christianity is not just a little, a few add-ons to your life. No, it offers you a whole new way of living. But here's the thing. It cannot be lived out. The way of Jesus, it cannot be lived out alone. You must live it out in community. And that's actually what today's passage is about. If you look at the text in verse 13, let's let's just kind of dive in here together. It says, Jesus went up on a mountainside. Okay, pause. Some of you are like, wait, we didn't even like read a whole verse there. Pause. We'll we'll move a little more quickly, I promise. But Jesus went up on a mountainside. We need to pause here because whenever Jesus goes up on a mountain in the Gospels, something big always happens. Something important always happens. Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. Jesus' first and most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus' transfiguration, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks, where his disciples get a whole new understanding of Jesus' glory. Jesus' death on a cross. Jesus' great commission to the disciples. You know where all of these things happened? On a mountain. Something big is happening here. And what is it? Well, look at the rest of the verse. It says, Jesus called to them those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12. Okay, have you ever wondered why 12? Like, why not not 11? Why not 13? I mean, why not one? That'd be a lot simpler. You know, the more people you have in the, in the mix, like the more complicated things get. Why not 10? Why not 50? Why 12? Every commentator that I read this week said it would have been obvious to everyone there why. Because for any Jewish person, 12 was a significant number. The number 12 represented the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, what was Israel in the Old Testament? Well, Israel was a nation, but Israel was more than a nation. They were God's chosen community. They were chosen by him to be a light to the nations. They were meant to show the nations what a society would look like that was lived under the love and the reign of God. And if you know the story, it, it didn't go very well with Israel, okay? But now, the reason Jesus chooses 12 is because he is creating a new community, a new expression of the people of God. And this new community has the same call as Israel. They are meant to embody to the world the kingdom of God and the ways of God and this this new life that is offered under Jesus. What is this? Here's the question. What is this new community that Jesus is creating in Mark chapter 3? It's the church. It's the church. Uh, Listen to what Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 says about the church. It says, you are citizens of God's people and members of his household. Listen to this. Built on the foundation of the, the apostles. Those are the 12 people we're reading about in this passage. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. So here's where we're going in this text today. We're going to be talking about the church because the way of Jesus cannot be lived out alone. It must be lived out in the community of the church. And some of you, you're here saying, "Uh, Jesus, yes, church, no, or Jesus, maybe church no and you know some of us in this room we've been deeply wounded by the church and we need to acknowledge that I'm not trying to give you some rosy uh sermon on the church today and you'll see that in just a minute but but I want you to think about this um Jesus calls the church his bride so if you don't like the church that that's kind of like saying to someone I really like you but I cannot stand your spouse you want to say that to Jesus? I don't know. You know, uh, the church is called the body of Christ in the New Testament. If, if you don't like the church, that's, that's, like, that's like one spouse saying to another, I love you, but your body disgusts me. That's, please don't do that, by the way. I'm just Let me offer some free advice this morning. That's not going to help your marriage out. Um, see, here's the point. Jesus loves the church. And if you are his follower, he wants you to love the church. And my hope this morning is that we can all make a little bit of progress in that area. So three things to consider this morning from this passage. Why do we need the church? Why does the world need the church? And why only Jesus can create a community like the church? Why do we need it? Why does the world need it? And why only Jesus can create it? So first, why do we need the church? why do we need the church? You know, so many Christians uh, see the church as something they don't need. It's, it's optional. Uh, it's, it's, it's not necessary to growing and flourishing in your life with God. But I want you to notice something again in this text. Look at verse 14. It says that Jesus appointed 12 that they might be with him. Now, I think most of us We hear that and we think, oh, okay, Jesus brought these disciples into this new community for their sake. And that is true. They needed Jesus. But here's what I was kind of thinking this week. What if if it wasn't just that they needed Jesus? What if Jesus needed them? What if he brought them into relationship with him and into this new community, not just for their sake, but for his sake? some of you, you get really uncomfortable when I start saying, you know, what if Jesus actually needed something? But I want you to, before you like start throwing tomatoes at me, would you just think about this for a minute? Listen, what God says in Genesis 2.18, God says in Genesis 2.18, it is not good for man to be alone. And this is God's way of saying to be human is to be made for community, is to be made for relationship. So let me, let me ask you a question. Was Jesus human? Anybody want to answer that? Was Jesus human? Yes, Yes, absolutely. He was fully God and he was fully man. And in his humanity, he needed community just like you and I need community. What this passage is saying was he didn't just need community in general, he needed the community of the church in particular. And you see, just would you just think about this for a moment? If Jesus, the second person in the Godhead, needed the church, how much more do we need the church? If it was a lot, thank you. That was a great answer. <laughs> a lot. If it was necessary for him, how much more necessary is it for us? And maybe you're saying, well, why is it necessary? Tell me, tell me why it is necessary. Would you just look at who Jesus invites into his community? I mean, let's just just start with the first name on the list. Simon, also known as Peter. Do you remember him? He was a bag of contradictions. One minute he was declaring that he would never deny Jesus, and the next minute he does. One minute he is so full of faith that he is walking on the water, and the next minute he is drowning in doubt... And fear and worry. And you see, the question is, which one is he? And the answer is that he's both. And so are we. So are we. See, do you ever, do you ever act one way in public and another way in private? Uh, do you ever, are there, moments, are there moments where you trust God? And are there moments where you struggle to trust God? Are there moments where your heart breaks for the poor, and then are there other moments where you walk by people with nothing to eat and you don't even notice them or see them? If so, Jesus says, you belong in the church. He invites inconsistent people who are a bag of contradictions. You know who else he invites? He invites self-centered people. The next two names on the list are James and John, Sons of Thunder. I need a nickname like that. James and John. James and John. In Mark 10, in Mark 10, let me tell you about James and John. In Mark 10, Jesus is, they're walking along with Jesus. Jesus is telling them how he must go to the cross and die for them. And you know what they say? They say, thank you, Jesus. That is so wonderful. No, they say, hey, here's an awesome idea. How about when we get to heaven, you make us awesome. And we'll sit next to you. One of us can sit on your right and one of us can sit on your left. I mean, Jesus is telling them all that he's going to do for them and all they can think about is themselves. You ever been there? I mean, do you have a tendency, have you ever noticed your tendency to think of yourself before you think of others? To prioritize your own needs over the needs of others? If that's you, you know what Jesus says? You belong in the church. And some of you are saying, well, you know, I don't know if I want to be a part of this thing. A bunch of flaky, inconsistent, self-centered people. That doesn't sound like a group for me. Well, let me introduce you to another name on the list. Simon the Zealot. And Simon the Zealot was so passionate about obeying God's law that he thought he was morally and spiritually better than everyone else around them. See, Jesus invites the self-righteous, too. And he invites moral failures, which is everyone on that list, and it's everyone in this room. We have all done things, pastor included, that we wish we hadn't. We have all crossed lines that we had never thought we would cross. So let's just, let's just tally this all up. The church is made up of people who are inconsistent, self-centered, self-righteous, and have all sorts of flaws and failures. I mean, don't you love how honest Jesus is about the church? And you see what this is all of us. But but what most what all of us, what our default is? Our default is to cover up all of these things about ourselves. We hide we put on masks. It's really easy to do when you when you come into church. Cuz you think oh, this is the place where I'm supposed to look like I've got it all together. We hide, we put on masks, we strive, some of us our entire lives, we have strived to be successful and to achieve to cover up for the fact that we don't feel like we are enough. We we project the best versions of ourselves because we're afraid if someone really knew us they wouldn't love us. And I just wanna tell you this morning that that the problem with that is that it is an incredibly fragmented and destructive way to live. You know why? Because, friends, that is the best soil for shame to take root in your life. Brene Brown says this about shame. She says, shame needs three things to grow exponentially in our lives. Secrecy, silence, and judgment. And you see, this is why we need the church. The church is meant to be the place where you can finally be honest, where you can finally stop hiding, where you can finally stop pretending, where you don't have to project. And that means that it is a community where you can be fully known and fully loved, loved despite all of your inconsistencies, loved despite all of your self-centeredness and all of your self-righteousness, loved despite all of your flaws and failures. I love the way that Tim Keller puts this. He says, churches should feel more like the waiting room for a doctor and less like a waiting room for a job interview. In the latter, we all try to look as competent and impressive as we can. Weaknesses are buried and hidden. But in a doctor's waiting room, we assume that everyone there is sick and needs help. And that is much closer to the reality of what is going on in church. Here's the truth. Every single one of us came through those doors this morning limping. And what we need is we need a community that is going to know us and love us and welcome us in all of our limping. In all of the ways that we come in as broken, messy people. That's what the church is meant to be. Now I know for some of you that has not been your experience in every church. But I pray that it is your, your experience in this church because it is what we all need. We need the church and that brings us to the second point. Why does the world need the church? Now I've been a pastor in the Bay Area for almost 20 years and I cannot tell you how many conversations I've had with secular people who say you know the problem with the church is that it has no relevance to the world. They feel like the church, you know, you know what? You know what people who don't go to church feel like the church is? They feel like it's a group of people who get together on Sunday mornings to sing some songs together with some really weird lyrics. <laughs> and then we leave and we go home and we have no real impact on our city. And I've seen, I want to tell you this, I've seen so many Christians actually reinforce this idea because they think that Christianity is just like this ticket to heaven. And that's all it is. That it has everything to do with the next world and nothing to do with this world. And so people say, well, does the church have anything to offer the world? You know what this passage tells us? It tells us that it has something incredibly important to offer. In fact, I would go so far as to say that what it is offering to us in this passage is what the world needs more than anything else. It's what the world needs desperately. Uh, have you ever heard the term filter bubble? Filter bubble. You ever heard the term? The term filter bubble? The, the filter bubble is, is an algorithm that Facebook created. And it determines what shows up in your feed. And it's designed so that you, you mostly see content that you agree with. Now some of you, you're being really self-righteous not right now because you're like, Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> see, I told you, and you belong here. You're welcome here. They're like, nah, TikTok. TikTok is where it's at, all right? Listen, I I know Facebook is so yesterday, but this is how all social media works. It's, It's actually how the internet works. Eric Schmidt, who worked at Google for 20 years, he was the CEO for 10 of those years, he said this, it's very hard for people to watch or consume something that has not in some sense been tailored for them. Author Eli Pariser says this, What's in your filter bubble depends on who you are, and it depends on what you do. But the thing is that you don't get to decide what gets in. Now, the filter bubble is actually a metaphor for how we live our lives. Because what what we tend to do is we surround ourselves with with ideas and interests and people who reinforce what we already believe. We surround ourselves with people who think like us and who vote like us and who have the same socioeconomic status as us and who live in the same neighborhoods as us. And what every social scientist is saying right now is that we are more divided as a nation than we've ever been. There's more polarization than we've ever had. And the question that everyone is asking is this, is there anything that can actually bring us together? We have all these differences. Is is there anything that can actually unite us together? Well, I want you to look at who Jesus brings together in this new community. Uh, It's it's a community of radical, incredible diversity. Uh, There's socioeconomic diversity. Matthew is a tax collector, which means he was wealthy. But Peter and James and John and Andrew were fishermen which means that they were at best middle class and most likely poor. There's political diversity in this group. That's something we are lacking today, amen? There is political diversity. Listen to this, Simon the Zealot. You know what zealots wanted to do? They wanted to overthrow the Roman government. While Matthew is a tax collector who works for the Roman government they They're political opposites and yet Jesus brings them together this group of people could not have been more diverse and what's really re- interesting when you read the Gospels is that this is one of the defining marks of Jesus's ministry he is constantly bringing people together who do not belong together in Matthew chapter 8 he says to a Roman centurion who would have been an, Israel, an enemy of Israel The centurion comes to Jesus and asks him to heal his servant and Jesus says, never have I seen faith like this. In Matthew 15, Jesus goes to the Syrophoenician woman. She was a Canaanite, which would have been another enemy of Israel and he welcomes her. In John chapter four, he goes to the Samaritan woman at the well, who is a racial outsider and he offers her living water. This was one of the defining marks of Jesus's ministry. And it was one of the defining marks of the early church. In the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit descends at Pentecost, you know what the first thing that happens is? A diverse community is created. It says that Africans and Asians and Greeks and Romans all became a part of the community of the church. And I think this is so interesting. When you look at what's happening in the New Testament with the church, and how it's bridging the gaps between all of these people who are so different. Because one of the major criticisms, one of the major criticisms that people have when it comes to religion is they say, look, religion only adds to the division in our world. Have You ever thought about that? I mean, when you kind of look at history, there's been a lot of division and fighting because of religion. What people say is, look, it doesn't bring us together. Religion only pushes us farther apart, and it only makes us more tribal. It only puts you into groups with people who are just like you. And statistically speaking, actually, this is true. This is true. Uh, Laman Sane was an African theologian who taught at Yale. And he wrote a book called Whose Religion is Christianity? And he picks up on this idea that religion tends to divide us by pointing out how culturally and geographically homogenous most religions are. Let me give you some statistics here. 96% of all Muslims live in the Middle East, Africa, or South Asia. Think about that. Only 4% of Muslims live in the rest of the world. 88% of Buddhists live in East Asia. 98% of Hindus live in India or South Asia. And you see, all religions, they are limited to a particular culture and geography, and therefore they put us into groups of people who are just like us. All religions, except for one. And this is what Laman Sane points out in his book, that Christianity is the only religion of any real diversity. Let me give you some statistics here. 25% of Christians live in Central or South America or the Caribbean. 22% of Christians live in Africa. 15% live in Asia, and that's growing rapidly. 12% live in North America. And 20% live in Europe. Isn't that interesting? No other religion looks like that no other religion has been able to bring different people together like that does the church have anything to offer the world it certainly ought to God certainly intends for it to the church is not just meant to be the place where people go to get their ticket to heaven It is meant to be a community of people who embody how the gospel breaks down every barrier of race, class, culture, ethnicity, and politics that has so divided our world. And you see, this this is the community that the world is actually looking for and longing for. And, and by the way, this is why diversity is actually a core value of our church. And by diversity, I don't just mean we want to get a bunch of people in this room who are, look different and of different ages and live, live in different places of the city and have different levels of income and, and we just sing some songs together. No, I'm talking about a community of people who are actually opening their lives to one another, who are opening their tables to one another who are doing the hard work of unity and reconciliation with one another. Here's an incredible statistic about our city. I actually heard this a couple weeks ago. That in Oakland public schools, over 50% of the kids who are in Oakland public schools speak a non-English language at home. That is amazing. I mean, what an opportunity that we have as a church in this city to model how the gospel brings really different people together. And you say, how are we going to do that? How are we going to become this kind of community that the world needs and that we need? And that brings us to the last point. That the radical claim of this text is that only Jesus can do this. Why? Well, at the end of this passage, we get this striking story. That right after Jesus creates this new community, he's in a house with a bunch of his followers, and his mother and his brothers show up at the door. And they think Jesus has gone mad, and they show up to actually, it says, to take charge of him. The language is actually stronger. They show up to arrest him. This is a whole other sermon in itself. We're not gonna go down this road this morning, but his mom and his brothers come to the door, and verse 33, is, I think it's one of the most shocking verses in the Bible. It says, Jesus said, who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. And then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. What is Jesus doing in this moment? This is, this is revolutionary what Jesus is doing. He is redefining our whole understanding of family. You know, if you've been around our church, I hope that you've heard us say that church is not an event to attend, but it is a family to which we belong. This this is where we, this verse is one of the places where we get that from. Now, in the first century, which was a traditional society, your family was your identity. And that's actually still true in some cultures today. Your family was your identity. If you had no family, you were a nobody. And what Jesus is saying is... He's saying, I have come to create a new family. And when you are in my family, you get a whole new identity that revolves around me. What does that mean? It means that when you become a Christian, you get an identity that transcends all of your other identities. I want to be very careful here. It doesn't erase your other identities, but it transcends your other identities. So for example, When it comes to race you know i've heard a lot of people say i don't see color i see people and as well intended as that is i want you to know something that is not the mo of heaven it's not the mo of heaven in revelation chapter 7 verse 9 john gets this vision of heaven and it says this i looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation From all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. There is all sorts of color in heaven. And there are all sorts of cultures in heaven. God glories in diversity. And we want to be a church that glories in diversity. God made us different. But listen to this, friends. In Christ he gives us an identity that transcends all of those differences. It doesn't erase them, but it transcends them so that he can bring us into a singular family where, despite all of our differences, there is one thing that we share in common. What is that? There's this little detail in this text that we skipped over, and it's in verse 19. And it tells us that there was one who betrayed Jesus, Judas. What's really interesting is that all four gospels have this little note there was one who betrayed him. And you see, in the providence of God, Jesus chose. You say, how did, how did Judas make it into this group? Remember, Jesus chose them, they didn't apply. No, Jesus chose them, and in the providence of God, Jesus chose one who would betray him. It was part of the plan. You know why? Because he came to suffer and die. And he came to do it for you and me. He came to do it for people who struggle to trust him and who are flaky and who are inconsistent and who are self-centered and who are self-righteous, and who are more of a mess than we even know. And that is who this table is for. This table is not for good people, and it is not for moral people, and it is not for religious people. This table is for broken people. It is for broken people who are gathering around the table of our broken Savior who loved us and who gave himself for us so that we might be fully known and fully loved by him and so that we might be one family in him for all of our city to see on the night in which he was betrayed the lord jesus took bread and after he'd given thanks he broke it and he said this is my body broken for you eat this in remembrance of me And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup represents the new covenant which is shed in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. The apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the hope of this table, that we don't have to come pretending or hiding or projecting. But we come to a God who sees us better than we see ourselves. You see us to the very bottom. And your response is never to turn away from us. But it is to embrace us and to love us and to welcome us. All because of what your son has done for us. Would you help us to believe that this morning as we come to this table. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.